My name is John Sherwood, as I mentioned before, and uh, if you are just joining us, um, you are jumping into the middle of a series that we've been a part of uh, called Following the Prince of Peace in a Culture of Violence. And what we've been doing is we've been exploring um, Jesus' nonviolent life and teachings and the historic perspectives of the early church around some of these topics. And uh, I wanted to begin in a similar place that I've begun each week, and that is um, a quote um, that I really appreciate and think is very helpful as we continue to look at this. This quote says, Christians striving to follow in the way of Christ should be willing to question and, if necessary, to adjust their deeply held convictions and to ask probing questions of others in a spirit of amity and sincere inquisitiveness. And so we've had a couple of teaching lessons, and then we've had a couple of microchurch discussions to try to process and dialogue through some of the things we've been looking at and talking about and reading. And we've been trying to do it in a spirit similar to this, where there's an inquisitiveness, there's a sincerity, um, and there's a humility and a willingness to even perhaps adjust things that we have believed before as we seek to let the Word of God be the authority for our lives and doctrines. Um, So wherever you're at in your journey, uh, whatever brought you here today, if you've been coming for a decade, if you've come, this is your first Sunday, um, I want to encourage all of us to remember these words and this spirit, to seek to be humble in front of the Word of God. This is where we have been and where we're going. Uh, We started this series with a lesson about two kingdoms at war and how Jesus' kingdom is in conflict with all other kingdoms of the world. And we looked in particular with Jesus' involvement and interaction with Pilate in John chapter 18 and how Pilate represented this kingdom of Rome and by extension all kingdoms of mankind and how Jesus' kingdom is fundamentally different from that kingdom. And in particular, we talked about how Jesus' kingdom is different from all other kingdoms of the world in a few specific ways, in particular in how it views power, truth, and violence. And this is that section of John 18 that we looked at with Jesus and Pilate while he was on trial. Next, we talked about the idea of Christian nationalism and how these two fundamentally separate kingdoms that we see in the New Testament began to merge and be blended into one kingdom, effectively starting with Constantine in the 4th century, but has continued all the way through human history and Christian history in particular, even to this very day right here in America. How many of you guys were here for that lesson on Christian nationalism? Okay. If you didn't get a chance, uh, you can go and take a look at all of these on our YouTube channel um, and catch up if you're interested And I just want to continue to remind us to have a sincere inquisitiveness and a a willingness to uh, seek together. So that takes us to today. Um, Something I think is really like at the heart of what we're talking about. I've titled this, Do Not Be Afraid. Um, And I think that the concepts that we're going to talk about and read about today are at the very center of this larger topic of Christian nonviolence and Jesus' life and teachings 
that of his disciples and the early church for the first 300 years. But I believe that this concept of fear, what we are afraid of and what we are not afraid of, we saw at the heart of Jesus' very own disciples. For those of you that are familiar with the gospel stories, Jesus is arrested. And the night that he's arrested, one of his closest disciples, Peter, actually tells him, I'm ready to die with you. Because Jesus is walking back into the holy city of Jerusalem, and he's anticipating persecution. He's anticipating his own death. And he's telling his followers that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And one of his closest followers says, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'll die with you tonight. And then for those of us that know the story, what happens? He pulls out his sword when Jesus is being arrested by the Roman guards and the legionnaires. And he swings his sword to protect his rabbi, this innocent man, and presumably to protect his own life too. And what does Jesus say? Put your sword away. And what does Peter do? He runs away. He flees. Not because he wasn't willing to die, but because he wasn't willing to die the way that Jesus was. Peter was willing to die with his sword in his hand. Jesus was willing to die with no sword in his hand at the hands of his enemies when it was unjust and unfair. Jesus embodied his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount when he said to not only love those who love you, for the pagans do that, but to love even those who hate you and persecute you, to love your enemies. Peter said, I'm not so down with that. He and every other follower that Jesus had ran away that night to protect their own lives, to save their own lives. But then All of them changed. And what caused their change? Why did Peter come back and get reinstated by Jesus? And why did church history record that he actually did die a very similar death to Jesus, crucified on a wooden beam by Romans, very similar to his Lord? What caused that change? It was Jesus' resurrection. So today, we're going to go at the very center and heartbeat of Christianity. And for some of us, this is going to be like, what? Because for so many of us, we've grown up with an idea and a vision of Christianity that has nothing to do with Christ. The vision of the Christian faith is centered on one thing, and that is a man raising from the dead. And whether or not we believe in that resurrection will determine the choices that we make even about our own death. To begin, I want to invite us to watch this video from Bible Project called The City. This is actually a video they just recently did. And it's painting a picture about the theme and the concept of city in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. But I think the way that they're depicting this idea of a city and what a city represents, not only in the scriptures, but in human civilization, gets at the heart of what we're going to explore today. Let's open up to Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews 2, I'm going to read, I'll start in verse 10, but we're going to really focus in on 14 and 15. 
the centerpiece of the biblical story of the Christian faith has to do with what we believe about life and death. The Hebrew writer in verse 10 says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and that he would free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The fear of death is at the center of the Christian faith. And that as we believe in someone who triumphed over death and was raised to life again, it is supposed to have the effect of freeing us from our fear of death. And so for some of you, as you've been a part of this series and project all along, you took a survey. And one of the questions in the beginning was to rate your own fear of death. I think for me, this is something that is so central to the Christian faith that gets so little attention. For so many of us, the Christian faith really has been reduced down to what I call a get-out-of-hell-free genie card. That most of us hear the gospel in such a way that Jesus dying for our sins was about us getting forgiven and not having to go to hell. While that's true, that's actually not the center of the Christian faith. The center of the Christian faith, as it was recorded by the earliest followers, was about a man raising from the dead and offering them, and thus us, an opportunity to overcome death as well. So I'm constantly having to ask myself, how is my faith in Jesus raising from the dead translating to my own fear of my own death? I would contend that if you are a Christian and you fear your own death, you have not understood or believed what the gospel really is. Either we believe that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore we no longer fear death or we do not. And being freed from our fear of death invites us into a new life where we no longer have to preserve something, which is at the very heart of nonviolence. If you believe that you have to preserve your life, it's going to lead ultimately to violence if that preservation is threatened. And for so many of us, we have blended these two kingdoms that we can take Jesus and the kingdom of God and blend it with the kingdom of myself and preserve it at all costs and make them the same thing. And it is not the gospel of Jesus. 
I remember growing up and ending up in a pit of despair, depression, drug addiction, and a life of sin. A life that was what I would learn is called hedonism. A life seeking after pleasure. And I sought after pleasure in any way I could, in any way that people around me and the world around me, the culture around me told me to seek it. And it never led to very sustained pleasure. Any pleasure it led to was ultimately very temporary. And so I started to see a hollowness, a shallowness, a thinness in this life and existence. And you know what it led me to? To want to die. That life was so meaningless... Life was so thin and hollow that I thought it's actually better to die. And I was suicidal for a time in my life. And there was one particular night, and some of you have heard this story before, so I beg your forgiveness if you're hearing it again. But I sat up in my bed through the hours of the night on drugs, inebriated, with my pistol. I had a Ruger P95, a 45 caliber pistol. I loaded one in the chamber, dropped the clip out. You're going to have one opportunity, is what I thought. My mom was asleep in the room next door. I was in my early 20s. And as I sat there and I contemplated my life, as I tried to rationalize the best my brain knew how, what experiencing death would be like, what would happen when a very loud, short-barreled 45 went off early in the morning hours, what my mom would come and find and see in her son's room, the opportunity of actually not being successful in my own attempt at death and what the ramifications would be. I sat there and I contemplated and I tried to think through every angle. And I ultimately believe the only reason I did not pull the trigger that night is because I was afraid of death. And I thought to myself, one of the angles is that there is a chance you pull this trigger and it gets worse. And then I met Jesus. Then I was introduced to this man who overcame death and said, come follow me. And you know what happened? I was freed from my fear of death. Now, of course, I say that from this position living in an extremely wealthy and by all means and purposes, very safe life. And so I can only hypothesize what my actual fear of death is. I grant you that. But I believe that in very deep, meaningful ways, Jesus' resurrection and my faith in that has freed me from fear of death. And that has changed how I have decided to live each day ever since that I'm trying to live a life not preserving something, but wanting to give it away. Now, of course, my flesh fights against that because I like nice things too. I like having stuff, right? There's a part of me that doesn't want to surrender to this life being willing to give rather than hoard. And so if we are not going to fear death, then what should we fear as Christians? Jesus also has something to say about that. Look over in Luke chapter 12. 
As we look through the scriptures, you will actually see this theme of do not fear, do not be afraid over and over and over again. Some 250 times in the Old Testament, 80 or 90 times in the New Testament. This is a consistent theme of the biblical narrative about fear. And the consistent message is to not fear for a reason. But it also has a message that there is something we are to fear. And Jesus would say that is God himself. Luke 12, 4. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I remember sitting on a college campus one time in Atlanta, Georgia, at Georgia Tech. I've got a Georgia Tech grad in here somewhere. Whoop! Sting them. All right. I remember sitting there trying to reach out and evangelize and share the gospel of Jesus with people, much like Michael's embarking to do in Romania. And I remember sitting there feeling all kinds of things. I was frustrated. All these people were more intelligent than I was. They did not want to hear what I had to say. And I was like, I'm just going to crawl up under this tree, Lord, and just ask like the prophet to die, you know, just <laughs> bah humbug. And I was sitting there and kind of contemplative and praying. And, and I remember I saw this bird in this bush right near me. And this bird just kept jarting, like darting out, like super quick. It was a very small bird. And it would go in and come out. And it was happening over and over. It was so distracting. And I started paying attention to it. It's like, what is this bird doing? And I realized that the bird was going out to feed little chicks that were in this bush that I couldn't see at first. And it was so impressive. This little bird was like flying and darting around and catching insects like right out of the middle of the air. Like these insects would be flying around. I would just, bink, just grab it. I was like, so impressive. I was so quick, your eye could hardly follow it. And it would bring its catch back to this nest and feed these little chicks, right, who are sitting there blind, just with their mouths open, completely helpless, right? And I thought to myself, in the midst of the Georgia Technical Institute, all of these brilliant people from all over the world studying things like fluid dynamics and stuff I have no interest in ever learning about, This bird has no understanding of how the world is working, no understanding or concept, as far as I understand, of itself. And yet it darts out in any direction and finds food. Has no idea where that food is coming from, has no idea if there's going to be a next meal for it or its chicks, has no idea if it will survive the next day. It wasn't taking these insects and like burying them in the ground, you know, like a dog will do, right? Like, I'm going to save this for later. It wasn't building itself a bigger nest to store up food for when the winter comes. It was just going out and eating. 
And I was reminded of this passage where Jesus said, none of these birds even fall to the ground without God knowing. How much more valuable are you? And I was so humbled in that moment. I'm like, wow, God, this bird is flying out, trusting that it's going to eat. And here I am fretting at this university, like wanting to just give up and just be like, oh, you know, like, forget these people, you know. I was like really wanting to call down curses. I love Georgia Tech now, though. It's awesome. God used other people to be successful over there. But in that moment, for me, I realized I struggle to trust like this little bird does. And Jesus says that I should not only trust because God cares for me and loves me, but that God is the only one worthy of my fear. That a proper fear has to do with the only thing that actually has authority. And Jesus says, it's not death, but actually it's your creator. That death is not the end of the story. And so that is not worthy or proper for my fear in a Christian worldview. You can see how hard this is to believe, right? Christianity is much more than just going to church and trying to act right or have some set of behavioral modifications or moral conduct. Christianity is about believing at the very heart of things, death is not the end. And because of that belief, faith ultimately, it informs how I choose to live right now today, that I, like this bird, don't have to hoard, but that I can entrust and in faith go and live and give of myself. Because the only one who is worthy of my fear is the one who created me. Let's look over at another passage together. I'm hoping I have the uh, reference right, but I believe I do. It's 1 Peter. We're going to start in chapter 2, and then we'll read some in chapter 3 as well. So we've been talking about this idea of fear, that we're supposed to be freed from our fear of death because of our belief and faith in the resurrection, The only fear we're supposed to have is fear of God himself. And then Peter, who was told to put his sword away and then later was witness to the resurrection and it changed his entire life. He never came at anyone else with a sword again. He never tried to protect or preserve something again, but rather gave it away. He talks about fear in one of his later epistles here in 1 Peter. In chapter 2 and verse 19, He says, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? In other words, if you receive consequences because of your own stupidity and you endure it, great. So what? That's not special. He says, but if you endure unjust suffering... If you suffer at the hands of your enemies for no wrong of your own and you endure it because you're conscious of God, he says that's commendable. That's the Christian faith. He says, to this kind of life you were called for doing good. I'm sorry, 
You are called to this kind of life because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, do you remember the flogging? Do you remember the crucifixion? Do you remember them putting a crown of thorns on him and a robe and saying, who hit you? Prophesy to us, Messiah. The ridicule, right? The jeering, the insults. He says, do you remember when they insulted him? He did not retaliate. He did not defend himself. Self-defense. Are you reading that phrase in here? But God... But John, certainly God wants me to defend myself. Apparently, Peter says no. He says, instead, Jesus made no threats. Instead of defending himself like Peter did in the garden, instead what he did is he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He feared only God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And all through that, he's quoting Old Testament prophets, Isaiah in particular. Look further down in chapter three. He continues on about fear and the role that it's supposed to have as believers and followers of Jesus. He says, do not repay evil with evil. This is three, verse nine. Or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Just stop and marinate for a minute. I bet you have encountered some evil over this past week. Coworker, neighbor, crazy person in a car in traffic, your spouse, your significant other, you have felt some sort of evil, some sort of wrongdoing, some sort of unjust experience. God says, repay it with blessing. That's like me getting cut off in traffic I have a picture of Atlanta right now. <laughs> Coming down the connector, 75, 85 joint, it's like a million lanes wide, and the cars are going nowhere. I'm like, how you got a million lanes and cars can't drive nowhere? Anyways, I'm a simple man with a simple mind. It's like a car cutting me off for doing nothing wrong and then them being irate. You know, giving me the magical finger, the one that's so kind and loving in our culture, yelling and cursing. Maybe their window's down, maybe it's not, and it's just like. <laughs> and my natural instinct is, of course, not to defend myself and say, I was abiding by all the laws of the land properly. Thank you very much, sir or ma'am. No, my first instinct is, <laughs> I love you. Thank you. God bless you. I hope you make it on your way very quickly. <laughs> As we stop and ponder these kinds of ideas, we see that they actually have practical implications to the most 
mundane, seemingly meaningless things of our lives every day and to the very great and obviously significant, like how we view our own death. He says, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Hearken back to Jesus' words. Sparrows don't fall to the ground without God knowing. You are so much more important than they. His ears are attentive. His eyes are on you. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This literally in the original is do not fear their fear. Some will say do not fear their threats or do not fear their intimidation. It's literally do not fear their fear. Do not fear the fear that they try to impose upon you, which is where threats and intimidation is coming from in our English. Do not fear their fear. Or some might translate, do not fear what they fear. If we are going to be a people who believe in a resurrected Messiah, it is supposed to free us from the fear of death It is supposed to center us in the only proper fear that we can have, and that is the fear of our Creator. And it is supposed to free us from all intimidation. What does something like self-defense come from? Fear of what they fear. Fear of their threats. Fear, ultimately, of death. And of course, there's all kinds of gradations below that, fear of confiscation of property, fear of losing health, well-being, mental aptitude, right? Like, think about what are the things that you fear the most, right? For many of us in our cultural context, we may end our lives with very little capacity, mentally and physically. We will end up like we started, like those chicks in that bush, utterly dependent. I don't feel great about that. I can fear that. Going back to that story of that night in my room, I was convinced I would never live to see 25 years old. I'm 27 now, so I made it. I made it. For me personally, What this calls me into is to not fear whatever future may unfold. Whether I live to be 102 and drinking out of a tube and not able to remember my own name, or I die today on the way home. Whatever is to come, I can live freed from the fear of death because I believe that death has been overcome itself. And that I can choose to live and interact and participate with other relationships in a way that is filtered and lensed 
through that lack of fear, through that freedom. I was having a conversation with a brother recently as we've been dialoguing and trying to, to wrestle and, and to, to have this inquisitive spirit that we talked about and, and even being willing to adjust. And this brother came to me and said, man, I'm, I'm seeing Jesus and, and his words in the Summer on the Mount to love your enemies that I've read a thousand times in a totally different way. And he says, and it's making me think differently about some situations in my life. He said, I own a lot of firearms. And if I'm honest, those are all primarily for self-defense and defense of others. He said, if I were to love my enemies, what should I do with those? You know what I said? I don't know, brother, but I'm praying for you. I believe the Lord will lead you. I can't put out an edict on what that needs to look like. We are all invited on this journey to wrestle with the Lord individually and together. And he came to me sometime later and he said, you know, I've actually decided to get rid of my guns. He said, it's interesting because as I have pondered losing this sense of ability to defend myself, I have felt more free than ever. He said, I've actually come to see that true freedom is in my ability to give away even my very own life. And I was like, dang, that's pretty deep and challenging. And it forced me to ask those questions of myself. What freedom do I really possess each day? Where is my fear interacting with my decision-making? It could be me being angry at my child because he's growing up and developing a will of his own. And he does not exactly always want what I want. And this individuating thing is very challenging. And I have to be patient and not quick to anger, to seek peace and pursue it. Now, I'm not advocating that that doesn't mean that we aren't to discipline and to guide and lead just as God does us. We all know what happens when you let children individuate on their own without any guardrails. It usually doesn't go too well for them or you. So these concepts of not being afraid of death, of being freed from that fear, of fearing only God because he's the only one who properly has authority over all things and to be freed from and not fear the threats of other people in all of its forms, I think is an invitation to a kingdom that is separate from all other kingdoms of the world. As we continue on this next week, we're gonna close. We're gonna close the series with something I'm calling peacemaking, not passivity. And hopefully we're going to explore some practical implications and applications of what does it look like to be peacemakers. Certainly there's the grand scale of how can we help advocate for peace in the world in situations like Russia and the Ukraine. All the way down to how can I have peace in my own home? 
I'm going to tell you right now, I don't have all the answers. I'm struggling and a poor, wayfaring sojourner just like you. But hopefully we can wrestle with the scriptures and God's spirit can lead us in a direction where we are continually formed and shaped into these people of peace. That we can follow our Lord who set an example for us who did not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but instead responded with blessing, saying, Father, forgive them. We don't know, or they don't know what they are doing. I would like to close with a corporate practice of the Lord's table. And if you've been here a part of this series, each time we've been closing the service with an opportunity to take communion, uh, often called the Eucharist or the Lord's table, many different ways to describe this. And many different Christians throughout history have practiced this in different ways. And so I've wanted to try to practice our communion with the Lord and with each other in some different ways for us. And so if you would like to take communion, obviously I want to preface that you do that in a Christian manner. The scriptures teach us to evaluate and examine ourselves, that we're taking the Lord's Supper with a proper heart and attitude. And if you would like to do that and you don't have communion, go ahead and raise your hand and we will get that to you. But there's a passage that I want to focus in on in Matthew chapter 22 to guide our thoughts as we close with communion. This passage is likely familiar to many of us. It's often referred to as the greatest command. In verse 37, Jesus replies, or I'm sorry, Jesus is being asked a question in verse 36. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Referring to the Torah, the, the Old Testament. Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what I wanted to try today, if you would be willing, we've been examining Jesus' nonviolent kingdom, his nonviolent teachings and life and what relevance that has on us. In some of our practices of communion, we've talked about how taking the Lord's table or taking the Lord's supper, being invited to the Lord's table, invites us into a different life and how we view people and in particular enemies. Today, I want to focus in on Jesus saying the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So as you take communion, I want to invite you, if you're willing, to actually serve communion to your neighbor right now. The person sitting next to you, if they would like to partake at this Lord's table, serve communion to one another. And you can find a way to communicate that. You can find a way to talk about that. You can take a moment to pray together, however you want to do that. But at the Lord's table, we are being invited to love not only God, but our neighbors. And I thought, what better way to practice than right here, right now, with the actual neighbor on your left and right? And you can maybe think of creative ways to do this in your neighborhood or your home or whatever, right? The applications are almost endless. But I thought, why don't we take a moment to actually serve communion to our neighbors and in this way, try to love others as ourselves? Let's pray. Father, thank you that in Jesus, 
we are invited into a completely new reality, a completely new kingdom, a completely new existence, one that is so much more grand than simply having our sins forgiven and not going to hell, but one that invites us to be freed from the fear of death, one that invites us to love our neighbors and, yes, even our enemies, one that invites us to follow in your footsteps that we see in Jesus. God, help us as we journey. We need you. The flesh is at war with your spirit. As we break the bread, as we take the juice of the vine, as we remember Jesus, help us to remember to love our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.